This was just because I had made it kind of my mission to not get caught. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't be a professional criminal if I get, get caught. caught. <laughs> you know, basically went off the grid. Literally, completely off the grid on paper. 15 years off off paper. I lived here and there, but I mean, on paper. Cops would never know where I was. I mean, DHS, yeah. whatever. Like, I, I didn't pay taxes for the next 15 years. I didn't. Yeah. I hope okay. I get in trouble for <laughs> You're not going to. <laughs> I hope not. Welcome to the Dirtbag Chronicles. My name is Brian and I am your host. Today we have Josh with us. Welcome to the studio. Josh has got an amazing story and the best person to tell that story is Josh himself. So I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself and just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for having me. Uh, do I need to look at the camera? Here? We have three cameras. Three cameras. So, so I'm just talking to you. Yep, you're okay. just talking to me, man. So, yeah. So I'm Josh Newell. Um, been a peer specialist for a uh, few years now. Um, okay. So what is a peer specialist exactly? Uh, somebody with lived experience that's basically had training and certified by the state of Arkansas to help people in recovery. You know, okay. we act as an advocate uh, support. Uh, change agent, you know, we resource brokers. Uh, that's one of the most important things we are. But it all it all hinges on that lived experience that we have, you know, to help people. So. Okay. And is that what you do today? Is you're a peer support specialist? I am. I'm a peer outreach specialist for Ideal Option, which is an outpatient outpatient clinic that treats substance use disorder. Uh, so I get to work with patients every day, um, as well as develop uh, relationships in the community. So uh, I enjoy it a lot. Okay. Yeah. And what what is your day-to-day -day, uh, work look like with being a peer support specialist? <clears throat> so in my role with with the company that I work for, uh it's actually pretty amazing because I work for a great company that completely supports um you know recovery and self-care and mental health and um you know we're trying to help people but a lot, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that that are to, there to help people, but they don't treat their employees that way, you know, and this company does. So I'm very fortunate for that. Um, but at, my role with them is basically to work with the patients in the we got a clinic in Hot Springs and a clinic in Little Rock and a clinic in Jacksonville. And I work with the providers and the medical assistants in those three clinics and collaborate with them. We also have a nurse care team. And we all collaborate together. And so when a peer specialist, if it's a new appointment, I'll try to be there. I'm not always able to be there, but they can always reach me with the direct room telehealth. Um, but I'm there for them to call. Uh, if one of them goes to an appointment and says, hey, I need help with this provider or them, they can always reach me, you know, but sometimes the provider will reach out and say, hey, I talked to this person. Would you reach out to them or they need help with this or they need help with that? Um, and these are these are peers that are uh, in trying to get over substance abuse absolutely. disorder, yeah. substance use disorder. And they also have some mental health issues and things like that. A lot of times. Okay. So the counselors there, the therapists uh, or, or the, the nurses, they. The uh, providers. The providers, they send the peer or their client to you as a peer. 
and then you're able to help them. Is that how that works? Yeah, they'll just, you know, they'll send me uh, a team's message, you know, and or an email or or whatever. And uh, I'll reach out to the peer and meet them if I need to. But 90 percent, I don't actually have a like a caseload. I'm not I don't act as a case manager, so I don't have a caseload where I actually have appointments where I sit down. Okay. Um, that's not actually what I do. So I offer peer services in the form kind of, um, you know, who needs it, when they need it, how much do they need it. We have a nurse care team that's actually great with providing a lot of the stuff that peer specialists do. Mm-hmm. Um, but a big part of it is and that that is where I come in building these relationships. So, for instance, in Little Rock, where the clinic is, I use Wolf Street a lot. And Exodus, you know, those are two great, just to give an example, you know, like I depend on these relationships, these partnerships with other organizations to help with the patients of ideal option. That's good. That's great. Yeah, that's great. So as a peer, though, you have to use your lived experience. So it sounds like you have that lived experience to be able to go in and help people with uh, substance use disorder and mental health issues. Um, I want to kind of just dive into that real quick. Uh, when do you think that your substance use disorder started? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's my childhood. Okay. You know, um, it, it goes all the way back. I think I think um, underneath everybody's addiction, there's some trauma to some degree. And if the if the trauma didn't cause the addiction, then the addiction caused some trauma. Right. Yeah. But a lot of mine uh, stem from, you know, childhood trauma. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in a, in a house that uh, my dad was a severe alcoholic. I've talked about that a lot. So a lot of people know about that. But for those who don't know, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people. I don't know how many people listen to the show, but quite a few. <laughs> uh, so they're new to this. Uh, yeah, my dad was a severe alcoholic. When I say that, when I say severe, um, you know, on a scale of one to ten, we're talking a 10 a lot of times now it was intermittent. So, you know, he, he'd go six months, just, I mean, morning to night, you know, had to be drinking 24 seven, somehow maintained a, a job. He made a lot of money. So when I was growing up, you know, he worked his way up. He was a hard worker, ambitious guy battled with his alcoholism his whole life. Um, but at his worst, which, you know, he, at his worst, um, you know, he'd eventually get so bad that he'd end up in a motel room, you know, doing some crack, doing God knows what else. And he'd come home and just do, you know, he, he'd come home and do some crazy shit. Um, just to, just to give one example, that's one of the most memorable for me. There's a lot of them, but, uh, I remember, I don't, I don't know what my exact age was. I was eight or nine. No, no, no. Scratch that. I was 11 or 12 um, when this happened. He was one of his alcohol crack fueled, you know, uh, rages. Don't know how long he hadn't slept for. Um, he, he my brother had just my brother's three years older than me. My brother had just reached the age where he was kind of like getting to the point to where he was kind of like F you dad. Mm-hmm. You know, like I kind of wanted to challenge, you know, because we had just been put up, you know, put through so much shit. And um, I remember there was an argument over the phone and um, with my brother 
And I remember my dad getting off the phone and he took some sidewalk chalk at the bottom of the stairs. There was an entry hall closet. He drew a big stick figure and said, this is Jake with an arrow pointing to it and then demolished it with an ax. And then he went, uh, it said it was, he was going to kill him. He wrote on there and told my brother on the phone that, and then he went outside on the front porch, sat in a rocking chair with a load of 12 gauge and the ax and, and just sat there in, in a rocking chair. And, uh, did you think he was going to kill him? Yeah, I did. I absolutely did. Uh, I called my brother and was like, you know, hey, man, you know, don't. I remember calling him like scared, shitless, and was like, don't come home, you know. And my brother at that point was like, he he didn't care. You know, he said he was coming home. And so I had to sit upstairs and just listen and uh, thinking, you know, this is, damn, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. Your brother was probably one of the most be- important people in your life, too. If if your dad was putting you through that, and I'm just making assumptions, correct me if I'm wrong, but if your dad was that bad of an alcoholic, he, you know, I'm sure as a as a son to a father, you looked up to him. At, at oh, absolutely. To, yeah, yeah, to some, some degree. Yeah, absolutely. But your brother was probably the one there to comfort, and you probably comforted your brother as well. Is that right? Uh, I don't know about that. Okay. Uh, let's put it this way. It, our, our relationship was complicated, right? Okay. So uh, my brother didn't come for me in any way that I needed. But we'll say this. If anybody ever messed with me, he would fight 20 people yeah. on the drop. I mean, without hesitation. And that was just his way of that was the only way he knew how to show you know, love, in fact, you know? we did. We've been in many situations like this. So, yeah. you know, but we didn't, he didn't come and give me a hug and say, it's okay. Right. Like, you, know, <laughs> you know, tough uh, love. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so where was your mom in, in all this? Yeah. My mom was scared to death all, all through all those, you know, you never knew, honestly, he, you know, he'd get out his 44 Magnum, you know, he'd come home and, and think, you know, he'd have these ideas that she was cheating on him. And, uh, you know, I remember one night he looked in um, under my sister's bed. He was looking for her boyfriend in the house. And I was younger than the door incident in this one. I was like eight or nine, I think. And uh, I remember him looking under the bed and pulled out a board game and looked in the Monopoly board game for the boyfriend. <laughs> right. <laughs> And that's when I was like, an eight-year-old's probably like, "What the what? fuck, Dad?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know that was, but so she was scared all the time when that was going yeah. on. Now, that kind of stuff would go on. He'd chase strangers down the road with forty-four Magnum. Um, sometimes he'd fire it in the house. That was always scary because you'd hear a shot, you didn't know that he just, you know, yeah, you didn't know either killed somebody yeah. or killed himself. Um, so it was, it, my mom was always scared. Um, one time we had to flee for our lives pretty much, um, to hide. And, uh, that was just a normal thing, you know? Um, but it wasn't always like that. So he, he might go, he, you know, he bought him out like that, do some crazy shit. And then he'd come full circle and get his shit together. He'd go to detox. He'd go to treatment. He'd come out, he'd be in 12, uh, 12 step. And then he'd be going to church. I mean, I grew up going to church, Southern Baptist every Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's like, how was that going on? And you were going to church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's confusing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but, you know, people in church, 
they're not always perfect. No. And 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 sadly, that's the perception. You know, I'm I'm a PK, and my grandparents were or were evangelists for First Assembly of God. So I grew up in the church, and and I know all of that. In the Baptist and and, and almost Pentecostal, it's it's kind of close. You know, yeah. they they have their rules, and but the the perception of the leaders in that church or the or the people in that church are held to such a high standard that that's the way that we perceive it as children. It's like, oh no, they're great people. They're perfect people. They don't have anything wrong with them in their life. And I think that's kind of is what ruins the uh, the understanding of of the church. Yeah. You know, is is the perception yeah. is that is we we perceive it as children as one way. A church is a safe place to be. A church is full of love. A church has got perfect people in it. If you they go to church, they they must have everything together, be responsible, and and that's not always the case, unfortunately. So you grew up in church. Uh, you had a alcoholic father that went on benders, you know, would get his shit together, come back and then destroy everything again. Yeah. And, and this was a loop. A loop. So and you mentioned before that, that you dealt with a lot of trauma in your childhood. Yeah. Uh, and you believe that that trauma is what drove you to substance abuse. Yeah. So, you know, with the with the inconsistency of, you know, six months of, you know, he'd get up every day reading the Bible, he'd be eating healthy, he'd be working out, he'd be trying to be disciplining me and, and, and going, you know, all that. And then, it, you know, the dive down again after he took one drink because work is too stressful or whatever. This over and over and over, it basically, and the fact that no one at the church, I think as a child, I could not comprehend why it had to be kept a secret and why mm -hmm. nobody where where were these people where were the where were these great christians mm -hmm. at the time you know this I, it was confusing to me mm -hmm. and so what this did basically was you know i had a lot of um uh, obviously you know a lot of a lot of hurt inside a lot of um a lot of neglect um emotional neglect and uh he never beat me my dad never beat me um, but there's different kind. There's different kinds of abuse. You know, yeah. uh, you don't have to be beat physically. Because honestly, physical, yeah. I, I it was so bad for me that I no kind of physical pain affected me after that. You know, which I took pride in through my teenage years. You know, like, um, yeah. but but yeah, it, it basically set the stage for me to rebel um, against in, in my younger years against. Uh, organized religion um it set the stage for me to really rebel against society in general anything that was conventional you know mm -hmm. um and then at one point my it finally caught up with my dad and my dad even though he made you know he made like two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year at his peak he was a very good salesman but when you're battling that it's going to catch up with you right yeah. um and so it did and he lost everything went bankrupt and i was at a very um, I was at an age where it really probably, um, affected me the most. I think I was 15. So right at that, you know, age where it's like, you know, you're just a young, young teenager, just became a teenager. And because of his alcoholism, you know, he lost everything. And I know some people might think like, well, well, big deal. Like, you know, you, 
Well, you don't know. You only know what you know. Yeah. And losing everything uh, is still difficult. Um, but I remember telling myself that day um, during that time that I would never let myself have financial problems. Like I remember it affected me enough to where like I vowed to to not ever have financial problems. And from that day forward, I was always very, very ambitious and didn't care about the law um, when it came to making money, you know, so. So I'm gonna take that as you made some money, some illegal ways. Yeah, yeah, that's when I, I started, uh, you know, um, yeah, that's when I started, you know, it started with little, little bags of weed and just gradually, um, went on from there. Yeah. So, so what was your substance use, uh, like as a teenager? Um, you know, I mean, pretty much I would do anything and everything, although, um, I always typically, stayed coherent enough because I usually had a backpack full of drugs that I was traveling around with. So if I did, um, I never, I, I never tended to, I would only get, I would only use, um, like I wouldn't take too many Xanax cause I didn't want my shit to get stolen. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't get too drunk cause I didn't want all my shit. To, I was addicted to money too. So that yeah. was, that was, you know, uh, that I thought that was going to, for, I don't I thought that was going to help me somehow, you know. Um, but uh, I never used in my teenage years. It was just whatever, you know, um, I got I went through a phase of like taking a lot of acid. Yeah. And uh, I think we all do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that was. An ex <laughs> yeah, that was an experimental stage. But, but but really anything, you know what I mean? I mean, I, in my, I mean, I, there would be times between 15 and 19, between 15 and 19 that. I would go around with a backpack and I would just be like, what do you, what do you want? Like, I got it all. Like I got mushrooms, I got LSD, I got Xanax, I got hydrocodone, I got, you know, pot, I got this, I got that, you know, um, I, I usually didn't sell meth or heroin mm -hmm. at that age, mm -hmm. um, or anything like that. But now, how old were you when that was going on? When you started selling 15 to, uh, I started selling at like 14, but really 15 to 19 is really when I was really like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, like I'm going to make a I like I made a conscious choice to make a pro to be a professional criminal. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> like really. I think I did the same thing. Yeah. What was your clientele like at that age? Like, what, was it just the kids you went to school with or were were you running out of a trap house? So, or? No. So it, it's it's interesting because uh, my brother, who's three years older, as I mentioned, he was the you know, he was a very popular guy. He was probably the most well-known, um, popular, notorious, both um, in his grade at our school. And uh, I was three years younger and I wanted I didn't want to be in his shadow. So I was always doing, you know, it, it became like the Newell brothers were a thing. Right. Like yeah. you don't want to fuck. Sorry, I didn't you, mean you to can say whatever. You okay, want, well, you, you don't want to mess with the Newell brothers because. You know, yeah. you know, Jake, my brother was a badass, but really it ended up being like, but his, the young one's the crazy one. Like that's yeah. what it ended up being, you know? <laughs> um, so you got a, you got an identity for yourself. Yeah. You I, your I, own identity. I had, yeah, I felt like I had to, cause I didn't want to be in it. Cause he was so, so I, but I say that to say this, that we, I used that. We, so many people knew me 
mm-hmm. in so many different groups that I use that to my advantage, you know? Yeah. So it, it was easy to, you know, it's always been easy for me to see opportunities. And so, you know, I saw that as an opportunity, like, man, I know everybody, everybody knows me like, you know, and also um, I could front things out because I wasn't worried about a somebody paying me or B if they didn't, I wasn't worried about going and kicking in a door or doing whatever I had to do to get it back. So how, how did you kick in doors often? Well, I normally didn't have to, but yeah. I have. Yeah. Yeah. So how violent do you think you got over that money? Because it, what I'm hearing is the money was the bigger addiction. Than at that point, you, at that time. Okay. Yeah. I was using drugs, but at that point, yeah, money was the, probably the biggest addiction yeah. at that, but during those years. Um, I think a lot of people get that misunderstood, too, because, you know, the big debate <clears throat> uh, I have seen a lot on on my platform, on on the Dirtbag Chronicles podcast pages on social media, YouTube, is di- di- addiction and disease. Is addiction a choice or is addiction a disease and, and all of this? And everybody, what I see is, oh, well, you can just stop doing drugs. Well, I think what the the big, uh, big confusion is, is that drugs isn't the addiction. Addiction is the addiction. Addiction is the disease. Drugs is just something that we use so that we can medicate that that disease of addiction. That's right. And, and it sounds like at first your addiction, which is the disease, uh-huh. started with the the money. And you got addicted to that, that chase, that, that, yeah. that income. Absolutely. And, um, and so I definitely want to hit more on how that addiction progressed. Yeah. But uh, what, what was the biggest amount of money that you think you got as a teenager? Before I got into my twenties? Yeah. Was it just little dime bags or, and um, just flipping and flopping? No, or? no, no, no. Uh, by the time before I was 20, I mean, I was already, I was already making, let's see. I mean, I had a coffee shop at 19 years old. Okay. I owned it. I owned a rent house at 19 years old. So it was more than time. So you're pushing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I took pride in it. Yeah. I I, I thought I was smarter than everybody. I knew I was smart, but I thought I was smarter than everybody. And I, and I, I always had it, I always watched growing up, you know, I had an older brother. And so I always watched people and it made me, um, even to this day, you know, really good at reading people. I got a good sense for reading people. And, um, you know, every once in a while, even when you think you're good at reading people, you can still misread a situation. Yeah. And sometimes that can get you into some shit, some huh? shit which, <laughs> which has happened. You know, I've had some, uh, I think I'm trying to think when I was 19, um, I think when I was nine, I'm trying to think of the age that I had a, I had $50,000 that I was investing in this big opportunity, you know, out in California. Cause it got legal. I happened to be at this, this age at the time that, you know, Oh, it was legalized in Cal, uh, California, but nowhere else. Yeah. This presented uh, an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. This presented an opportunity like, yeah. Hey, cause I could kind of see forward, like this is going to, you know, in the future, it's going to keep being legalized probably. Yeah. And like, there's a window and it's pretty big window right now. Like let's take advantage of it. And, um, 
So anyways, but that led me to, you know, uh, trying to get there and being ambitious to some failed attempts. And one of those, when I was, one of my first ones, I built up a stack up to like, you know, I don't know, 50, 60 grand or so. And I pretty much invested all of it in this gamble. And um, this guy, you know, he, he, he went with it. And, you know, a lot of people would look and say, I was dumb. Well, listen, I, I like to take chances, yeah. you know, but also I, I knew where two of his cars were. <laughs> so um, when he didn't come back and he just kind of went off the grid, I actually he had a 350Z and he had a 69 Monte Carlo with like a $15,000 system in it uh, that was at the place where they put the system in. And I managed to get both vehicles. I got both vehicles in my possession. And so when he found out, you know, it was, it was, you know, he was threatening my life and I was like, well, bring me my fucking money. You know, yeah. was the, that was the, that was yeah. the thing. Never did get the money. So I just sold the, sold the vehicles. Um, but you know, I th that was a normal thing when you, especially from 19 to, I think probably mid twenties, you know, sometimes I took shots and they didn't go well. And you try to try to, I tried to do the best I could to get it back or, you know, sometimes I just had to build it back and yeah, but anyways. So with, with that, I want to kind of dive into dirt bag. Yeah. Okay. So I was a dirt bag. I did some real dirt bag shit, fucked a lot of people over, um, you know, and, and that's a whole other episode for me to talk about my dirtbag shit. But this is your episode. And I kind of want to go into uh, some of the dirtbag shit that you pulled in your teenage years, addiction. And then we'll move on to the addiction with the drugs and everything, yeah. too. So some of the dirtbag stuff I did in that period of time. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's e easy. I, I didn't care about anybody else but myself, number yeah. one. So. Um, you know, everybody had a story, right? Because since I fronted, I would front, matter of fact, that's how 90% of the money I made, I would front the money or I'd front the drugs and knowing that, you know, I could get it back. And, you know, so there was lots of times where that wouldn't work out, yeah. obviously, you know? Um, but so, you know, there'd be people that just poor, poor, poor guys that, that I feel bad about that, uh, you know, I've apologized to that you know let years years later like hey man sorry about that yeah that I, how'd and, they take that i mean i'm uh pretty sure that every one of them that was in my part of this community you know yeah. that i'm we're okay we're all good now you yeah. know that was all just we were growing up you know yeah i was doing my thing they but yeah but i took advantage of you know like they they had an addiction they maybe they got robbed maybe they got an maybe they had an addiction to the xanax that i fronted them whatever the case but i didn't care because everybody was telling me stories and left and right and mm -hmm. i had to be able to basically just be like i don't care what your story is yeah like this and so that was you know i'd, I'd either ass or cash ain't it yeah <laughs> and and so that was uh you know looking back i still feel bad about talking about it right now because yeah. a lot of those people are i mean my friends they were my friends. Some of those people yeah. were my friends, you know. Yeah. But when it came to that, it was it was uh it, they owed me money. Yeah. You know. So yeah. Dirt bag. Yeah, I understand. I understand completely. So <clears throat> let's move into your twenties. Um, 
what were your 20s like after you said 19 you had a coffee shop a rent house uh, i mean yeah. it looked like from the sounds of it, it was it looks like you're on a kind of a, a financially successful road yeah so, so what happened so what happened was is group six uh which was a task force in Saline county my brother i don't know if i can say this um we'll just say my brother was involved with some people and those people were involved with some people and somewhere in that line of people, there were some pharmacy robbing going on. This was during an age of Arkansas pharmacy rob yeah, robberies. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And this was in the pinnacle of it. And um, so I was on the end of receiving those in bulk quantities. Right. And um, our house got raided. It was funny because I, I, it's not funny, but uh, I, I told everybody, like, we're being watched, we're being watched, we're being watched. Like, we were at a road and there was people running by, there was cars driving by. We were at a dead-end road. There shouldn't have been. Nobody would listen to them. Everybody was telling me, like, you're paranoid, you're paranoid, you're paranoid. And then there comes that day where there's a big white van coming down the road. And you're, like, sitting there. And we're all smoking. A, me and some buddies, we're smoking a, a joint, you know. And I'm like, what the? You know, before you even get finished saying what the, you know, yeah. the, the the side doors being slung open while it's around the corner and just dudes are scattering out so fast. I mean, it was like, boom. I mean, everyone's down on the ground. There's a guy that came out of the woods, full camouflage, head to toe, face painted, hands painted. I mean, the whole thing. Sticks coming out of his hat and shit. I mean, um, so that was shut down, number one. Um, they didn't find anything that day oh. by the way um so that was a completely wasted invest three-month investigation um but that made was you, that, made your butthole pucker a little bit oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely well i i knew we well i believed we were being watched so i didn't have anything in the house and my brother just got lucky because he had a safe that he kept his pills in and it they it just happened to be in between like they just, it just was bad luck on their part. Like yeah. they, we, we got lucky. Um, but that was before I was 19. So when I was 19, I was hot again. And it was, I, 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 um, I made it like basically my life's mission to not get caught. Mm -hmm. Right. The money came second to getting caught. Right. Like I would, at that point, you know what I mean? After the first time. So the coffee shop was hot. They were washing the coffee shop and I kind of caught wind of that. And then I kind of, then one of the guys that were supplying me with Xanax was like, you know, Hey, uh, I, I got word that, you know, and I kind of got w just here and there and put it together. And so I had to, you know, shut everything down. And so when I did that, all my income was, was, uh, I was working, but it wasn't enough to cover everything, you know. Um, so that that I ended up selling the coffee shop um, and really ended up going. Uh, um, it just it that that hit me to the point to where I basically um, just walked away from all the debt. I ended up having a lot of debt from that point forward mm -hmm. because most of my income was illegal activity. And, um, so I lost the coffee shop, lost the house. Um, yeah. And just, and this is because you were scared because of that one raid. Uh, this was just because I had made it kind of my mission to not get caught. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't be a, 
professional criminal if I get, get caught, caught. <laughs> you know. So um, I shut it down and just I lost the lost the coffee shop, lost the house, basically went off the grid, literally completely off the grid on paper um, and spent the rest of the next 15 years off off paper. So where, where did you live? Where, what did you do? Well, I just lived here. I lived here and there, but I mean, on paper, you oh, okay. know, no one. Okay. No, there was no the cops would never know where I was. I mean, DHS, yeah. whatever. Like I, I didn't pay taxes for the next 15 years. I didn't, yeah. um, you know, I didn't own anything on paper. Always, you know. Right. I hope okay. I don't get <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to. I hope not. If not, we'll get a good fucking lawyer. I promise. Uh, so, uh, and I've heard some way, way more dirty, grimier shit. Okay. Uh, you know, I, on my last episode, I had a guy that was locked up for 14 years, and he talked about all the shit he did in prison, uh, moving the drugs, and yeah. getting COs pregnant, and all of that. So, I think we're gonna I, we're gonna be good. Okay. Yeah. Trust me here. <laughs> I've got an honest face. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about your addiction. Where, where did that addiction take you? So, so at, th at that point, um, after that, my addiction was very, uh, I would say, manageable. I mean, I was just, I was basically self-medicating. Okay. Right. Because I had mental health issues that I was not aware of at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably so, from your childhood trauma. Yeah, and yeah. All that, I yeah. will, and, and I think um, just from just from what I know now that I probably had a predisposition to that my brother and sister were lucky enough not to get. You know that I think I had a little. My dad probably looking back had as well. Yeah. Um, that I've been diagnosed with and stuff. Um, and I just, but I didn't know that at the time. So I was self medicating. Um, so I was always taking Xanax, methadone. Um, you know, drinking, smoking pot, you know, um, every once in a while smoke some meth. Um, but it was, it was never, it was always just a little dabbles, yeah. dabbles, you know, yeah. along the way, you know? Yeah. And, um, that's where I was at with my addiction at that point, because at 19, I had a son. And so right after, you know, I got the coffee shop, I got the house cause I had a son coming and then I had to shut all that down. I lost the coffee shop in the house like a year later, pretty yeah. quick, you know. And um, so I just focused on working. And so my addiction, I've always used. So I'm not going to say that I, I, I wasn't, it wasn't an addiction because it, it was. It just, it wasn't, uh, I was, I guess which, what some people call it, a high functioning addict yeah. at the time. Yeah, which yeah. is, you know, me, I, I'm not a high-functioning addict, but I always called myself a high-functioning addict while I was well, in my addiction. You're always a high-functioning <laughs> addict until you're not. Yeah, you know? but, <laughs> ain't that the truth? But, yeah, yeah so, uh, but yeah, that basically went on for a while until I decided, like, okay, coast is clear, you know, like a year or something later, and kind of slowly, like, crept back into that world. Like, okay, I'm tired of, like, struggling financially yep. and got back into it. And this time, this time it was different. You know, it's like, I had learned a lot, you know, like had two close calls, been watched twice. I've been hot twice, rated once and, and somehow managed to come out of that unscathed. Mm -hmm. And, um, so 
uh, this, so I had a, a lot, when I came back into it, I was even more careful than I was before, you know? Yeah. Um, if I even caught a, even just the slightest whiff that I thought somebody would roll on me, I wouldn't even mess with them, you know? Yeah. That doesn't mean I didn't get into situations sometimes that were bad decisions because I still did. Um, for instance, this was a one that I always shake my head about. Uh, I, I was, I was uh, early to mid twenties, and my buddy was like, "You know, man, I can get these, I can get these hydros, big ball of hydros for X amount of price, whatever." It was a good price, and I was like, "No shit, uh, yeah, okay, okay." Because people knew I had money at that point. They'd come to me, you know, like my friends would come to me if they came across something. They'd be like, hey, you know. And uh, anyways, this was brought to me and, and he told me. And when I talked to the guy, something just, I was like, I don't know, man. You know, I don't know. That sounds kind of weird. Anyways, I, I let him. He was very persistent. Um, he talked me into it. And we went and met this guy. And he was like, yeah, you know, and I followed him out of the out of the car and went back behind these apartments and then you know the gun comes out you know and i just i remember just looking over at my buddy like dude what he got me into man and i just was like i wasn't scared at all i was pissed and uh but i did the guy the guy was real jumpy and and nervous he was young uh he was like 18 and he was jumping around with the gun you know and uh, I just I just handed him the money, you know, and was looking at him. And as soon as he ran around the building, I ran around the other side and jumped in. It was my um, my girlfriend. She had an H3. So. The chase was on uh, and uh, <clears throat> so I was chasing through Little Rock. <laughs> I was chasing through Little Rock and. Uh, I remember taking a turn on a road and they had turned around at the end of the road and I see him climbing out of the side of the window. And I was like, Oh shit. Uh, and that's when gunshots started going off as they were <laughs> coming full speed at me. So I hit it in reverse and, you know, started going in reverse backwards. And, uh, one of them went right through the middle of the windshield lucky shot and you know my head i'm looking back and it just i mean it must have whizzed inches by my head blew out the back windshield i lost control went through the front of a house thank god that nobody was in the house right yeah at the time i remember jumping out and just screaming in fury and rage jumped back in the 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 h3 which the H3, I can tell you from this experience, those things are terrible. Yeah, <laughs> because I was dragging bricks down the road. Yeah. I mean, literally, I was still trying to chase the dude, dragging bricks. Um, and there just happened to be a copper a detective or something on that road. And, and they pulled me over. I didn't even make it off the end of that road, you know. And uh, all the cops started showing up. And as soon as they pulled up behind me, I remember looking at my friend and I was like, here's the story. And I was like, stick to that, nothing else. And like, we got out, we said our story and, um, we didn't get any charges. Um, we stuck to that story and they had been looking at that kid anyways. 
and so he ended up pleading guilty. Um, so, oh wow, escaped another one. Yeah, yeah. So, but that was one. That was one of those bad decisions. You know, kind of when you know you shouldn't. You know. So from that point though forward, I said, all right, any situation that I feel iffy about, I'm talking about anything. I don't care. Like that, I tightened up even more, right? Yeah. You know. Uh, but still, even then, I was still just using like I think it was more self medication for my mental health stuff through all that period i'll tell you when it got bad um was by the way eventually i got to where i was where i wanted to be and i was driving i was driving pot from california that's was my goal the whole time and i finally made it out there and and was driving it back and i was making plenty of money so money wasn't an issue um the problem was was i didn't have I thought that was going to make me happy. So once I had like a, a lot of money coming in all the time, it didn't change anything. It was never enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was just like constantly, just like you said, it was like constantly chasing a high. It was yeah. never enough. It didn't matter. Um, but when my uh, girlfriend, the mother of my children, I had a, I had a son and a, and a daughter with, with her uh we were gonna get married when she got finished with school i was with her for 12 years and when she left me that's what that's what did me in man like it wasn't so much even her it was the fact that i thought i had lost like my kids meant everything to me and the fact that i fucked that up the fact that i was losing that it it broke me it mm-hmm. broke me and that's when i started snorting roxies and i wasn't doing that before you know i was just taking stuff orally you know like yeah and um that's when i started snorting roxies and that was the beginning and that was when i was uh that was the beginning of my you know long hard downward spiral yeah um and that was when i was uh 20 like 25 okay maybe, 20 25 okay somewhere in there. how old are you now 38 okay yeah okay uh so the the mother of your child y'all are together for 12 years you're you're really addicted to the money and the while you're in that relationship and then whenever she leaves you uh she takes the kids and and you just feel like life is over yeah and so your your go-to now is the uh, the roxies and you're probably wanting to snort them because you want them to hit faster because now you've gone into the full <clears throat> a full fledge of addiction of wanting to change the way you feel mm-hmm. the money money changed the way you feel it gave you this empowerment and and this identity and then that wasn't enough so when the the relationship ends it's like okay i need to feel something else yeah and because you were feeling the money power for a while and now it's the 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 drugs and the the that feeling of that high so did it stop at just snorting roxies or did it go no it, into it, deeper it, addiction no it went into deeper addiction it, it uh for a long time for years i still the money making side of things actually continued to grow somehow I don't know how, um, but I mean, I had, I had people out in California that were 
I was picking strains and they were planting them for me and growing them all the way to harvest specifically for me. And this was, this was all the while I was gradually getting worse into my addiction from mm-hmm. Soren Roxy's into where I finally, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly uh, at what point it wasn't very long, but I was at a buddy's house and, you know, the needle came out, you know, mm-hmm. and he's like, you, you want to do this? You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, why not? Yeah, fuck you, know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, uh, and you had known about the needle, but you did, was well, that the time that they told you like, this is what it feels like, but what, what attracted you to well, it? For all the bad that it sounds like, my my dad did my dad actually loved me and was a great guy everybody loved him like right yeah. like when he was sober and he actually gave me some great advice along along my childhood in between those uh periods of you know yeah, alcoholism binges. and binges yeah. and stuff and one of them was uh he looked me in the eyes i'll never forget i was young and uh I'm, or, I, don't know, I don't know what my age was i was young though he looked me in the eyes and he said whatever you do don't use the needle that was it. And so for a long time, like I tried to like, you know, I was like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But I think it got to be too much the pain, you know, where it was just like, I don't even care. Like a heartache, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so anyways, when that opportunity came up, it's not like I was seeking it out. But when it was there, I was like, you know, I'd been drinking and whatever. And yeah. So, you know, once you go to the needle, um, you tend to not go back. No. You know, no. as because you, then, you know, in my case, it was like now I'm doing it the professional way. Like I idolized the way of doing a needle and getting high that way. And it, like I was a real drug user and it's, it sounds so stupid. But like that was the the bro, bro, me romanticizing that lifestyle. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I would justify in ways. Well, you know, if you do it right, it's cleaner. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it, it, you get the effects, you know, you're getting the more out of your money. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. It, the effect is better. Yeah. You know. It's the purest way to do yeah. it. You yeah. Know, all that. So, yeah, eventually. So first it started off with me just sh- like shooting up the Roxy's and, you know, then, you know, whatever else I could get Dilaudid's and it was it was always pills. Um, and that went on for a while. And um, I was always trying to do more. You know, because money wasn't, I mean, a lot of people had to steal and shit to do. I didn't, I, I was, at that point, money still wasn't an issue for me. I had, I had a shitload of it. Um, when I say a shitload, I just, I just had a, a safe that was full of money. Um, and um, I remember I always wanted to do more, but you know, those Roxy's, you could only, you could only pull up so much. They got thick. Mm-hmm. And like, I, at, I remember one time, I had, uh, they got harder and harder to find too, uh, at one point. But anyways, um, I remember one time I was, I went ahead and tried to draw up like more, like, I don't know, like three. It it was something that was way too many. It was too thick, right? It was so thick that I I couldn't, it ruined it. It like ruined, like the whole thing was ruined, right? And I remember I cried. I cried over I mean, I couldn't get my fix. I just fucked it up. Yeah. I just, I just like, because I wanted more and I didn't have anything else. I won't ever forget that. Like, I, I remember, like, I, I was crying over not being able to draw up the, and you, you think like, I don't remember exactly. 
because you think like, well, why did, how come you couldn't dilute it more and, and then do it? And I'm, I'm trying, I don't know if I spilt it in the frustration of it or what happened. I can't remember exactly. I just remember that it was, I tried to drop too much and then I still was new to doing it myself for a while. I was having other people do it, you yeah. know? And like, I think there was another time that I had missed like three or four times in a row. And like, I just was like wanting my thick so bad that I couldn't even, I just started crying then too another time, yeah. you know? And, um, anyways, I eventually became a professional at that, um, finding veins, you know? Yeah. Um, anyways, that led to me to eventually, uh, heroin. It's cheaper. It's easier to find. And it felt better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, then it became the next step, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you could get a lot more in a syringe than you could with, yeah. with, with the pills. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's when, that's when it got real dangerous. So <clears throat> what was your family life like then? You know, what, what was your, as a, as a father, did you have contact with your children? Yeah, what? somehow, somehow, um, somehow in the midst of this, I still managed to, my son was really good at, he played baseball and football and uh, somehow I managed to make it to his, get him to his tournament games. Yeah. I don't know how, yeah. but I was there. I mean, like, I would have to drop him off a lot of times. Like, I'll be right back. Go get warmed up. And I'd have to go and do my thing. Yeah. And then come back. Did you ever feel guilty for doing that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was that something that, you know, when you got into recovery, was that something that you had to come to terms with and, and something that you had to address or was that just something that you brushed under and said and accepted it and it, that was that or was that an actual issue that you had to face when you got into recovery? Well, I think, I mean, yes. Um, but, you know, I was struggling with addiction and, you know, you, you got to give yourself some grace, you know, when you're in recovery. Yeah. Um, my daughter really got the shit into the deal because she, because of their age of when their mom left, she was younger and, um, didn't understand like my son does. Like my son and me have a great bond to this day, you know, but she's at an age, she's 16 right now. And she's, she's still mad at me even though i've apologized a million times for just being you know not there mm -hmm. um which i don't blame her um but i i all i can do is be there for her and continue to be there for her and continue to show her that i'm there for her and um you know hopefully one day she'll you know grow out she's 16 yeah yeah. So, but with my son, he, he, he didn't, he's all right. He, he's all right. 
Do He's, your children deal with any any disease of addiction or anything like thank that? Thank God, no. I, I used my experience, and, and their mom does too, and I'm glad um, that, you know, don't, don't be like me, you know, don't, don't like, like my dad and like me, you know, and I, I was very open with, which I know a lot of, a lot of parents, you know, try to hot shield stuff from the kids. And I, I just felt like that wasn't the way I felt like using it and saying, this is what's happened. Mm -hmm. This is real life, you know, and I think it's, I think in this case uh, that it's been very effective uh, for for my son, especially, um, he won't touch, you know, he won't touch anything. He knows, like, he, he don't, you know what I mean? Like, just with what I went through, mm -hmm. because he's so aware of what I went through and all the struggles I've had and my dad. Mm -hmm. um, my dad passing away when he was very young, and he knows all, you know, he knew all that from a very young age. And so he, he's never had issues. Does, he smokes a little bit sometimes. That's it. Yeah. Which I don't want to, I'm not trying to, like, say that's okay. I'm just saying. Right. But what works for somebody? Yeah. Might not be he, what works for other people? He just, I just know, I'm just happy that, you know, he's a, he's a hardworking kid. He always has been. He works overtime. He works weekends. He works like two jobs. You know what I mean? Like, uh, he's 19. Um, he just turned 19. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a good kid. Everybody loves him. You know what I mean? He's, he's very laid back. He's not like me. Thank God. Um, you know, he's, um, He's more like his mom, very laid back, you know, like everybody likes him. He's never going to be the one to to rattle people's cages or speak out like that's me. Yeah. That's 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 my daughter. <laughs> but my daughter, my daughter has more of my personality than she probably realizes. Yeah. So did you ever encounter going to prison or anything oh, with the yeah. law after, you know, being raided and and skipping out and missing and getting lucky and all that? Did yes. you ever get unfortunate? Yeah. So, caught? so, yeah. So using, so, okay. So selling never got caught. Um, okay. I remember <clears throat> as, as I used and as I was still making these runs, I would, I got to where. Um, trying to think what I can say and what I can't say on here, but don't just just let it out. Uh, well, let's just say that I had a I, I was basically my goal was to retire at thirty. Yeah, and I I achieved that. I had a house completely paid for, uh, truck, brand new toys completely paid for, all the toys that I wanted, you know. But I had to retire early because um, as I went from 25 to 30, I was uh, I wanted 187 acres of land. I had this spot picked out. You know that's what I was I was going for. And um, anyways, the uh, my circle of people that I trusted kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it was like three people mm -hmm. that I basically dealt with. And um, one of them, and these three people I trusted. Yeah, these three people I trusted. Like even if they got popped, I trusted them. Mm -hmm. You know, and one of them did, and it was he was going through the bulk of what I was bringing, and uh, it was the feds. You know, it, it was it was not it's rinky dinky shit. You know, and I had meanwhile a uh, pod 
container sitting in my driveway that I had just sent back from California with furniture. I mean, I bought all this fucking furniture to put in it just, just for that. Now that's not how I normally did it. I knew that was like a one time, you know, I could do that one time, you know, um, it was just that particular time that, that he got popped. And I knew right then and there, you know, like, damn, like all he's got to do is say, but I was like, I don't think he will. You know, that's why I'm, that's why I deal with him. You know, like I saw, and he didn't. And, um, and then they, he got, they were, um, they had him for conspiracy charges, which if you know, means they can hold like 15 to 20 years over your head. Yeah. And that's basically how they kept, you know, they get information, they dangle 15, 20 years, they get information they keep on going down the line. Right. So he basically gave up somebody else, somebody that wasn't me just to give him somebody. Mm -hmm. I don't fault him for that, by the way. Um, You can say dude was a snitch or whatever, but pretty much everybody that was in that line of people that the feds were getting, uh, they all gave him somebody's name, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so anyways, he's, he's not here with us anymore. Uh, he was a good dude. I, he, he, um, man, I I respected him so much that this is how much I trusted him and respected him that after he, while he was waiting to go to prison, he was on some sort of deal where he was like on house arrest at home in between waiting or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly the specifics, but and I, I went out there to talk to him, which is, you know, I mean, normally, you know, you're like, you, you cut that off, right? Like, yeah. uh, that's how much that I trusted him. And uh, anyways, that, that was, that was when that was the end of it. Yeah. You know, once the fed, the feds are different than, than uh, group six, that's yeah. County task force. Yeah. We're talking about the feds. Yeah. Like that's when I, was like, okay, <clears throat> that one's not going away, you know? Um, yeah. so I, I cut it, cut everything off and, um, I got the house and, uh, was like, I'm done. You know, I got a house, I got my truck, I got toys. I got, I'll just, you know, I'll just work and that's it. It's a very tough adjustment by the way. Yeah. And you're still involved with the addiction part, yeah, too. Yeah, The heroin. It got worse and, after that. Okay. Because then, because all of a sudden, you know how you hear about people when they go into retirement? Like, they don't, like, because you, you have a self, you kind of identify with your, a lot of people with their, what they do for a living. Yeah. And they retire and they, like, get depressed and all that. I, I went into a state of depression after that. Okay. I didn't know what to do with myself. That's kind of, like, what I did. That was my thing. That was what I did. And uh, it was very hard for me. And that was when I first got on. I finally went and like saw a psychiatrist uh, after all those years. And, you know, they said I had depression and anxiety and 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 uh, I, I reluctantly took. Um, what was it at first? Some type of SSRI that I couldn't deny. It helped me. I, I you know, I could not deny that it helped me. So I was like, OK, you know. I'll keep taking that. Uh, but yeah, the drug using got worse and to the point to where I got, I 
at some point around there, I started to, tr- I didn't want to be doing what I was doing anymore. I hadn't for a while, actually. And I kept trying to stop using and it, it wouldn't last very long. And, um, and so there was a lot of continuous relapse and, um, I, um, one of the last times I I basically, I, I, I sold my house to be able to keep using it. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of money to use. Yeah. That's a lot of money to use. Um, yeah. Yeah. So did you, so were you, your encounters with the police that never took you to prison? Not yet. Okay. Not for that. Okay. So, um, so I basically, after I sold the house and I went through all that money, um, the drugs were so bad at that point. It was just, it was just like, it was total darkness is what it felt like at that point. Right. Like no hope. And I was just using, and I, I, I remember at some point saying, cause everybody was, everybody thought that I always had money and, and even after the house, people just were so used to me having, they thought they thought I had, had plenty of money. You know, I'd be like, no man, I don't, I'm like, don't, I'm running low on money, man. Like, you know, and they'd be like, yeah, right. You know, like, <laughs> like and you always say, that, you yeah. know, like, no man, I'm serious. Um, and so I made a conscious decision. I remember like, I was like, you know what, I'm going to sell all my, all my shit everything and so people will know i got nothing left and i made that i made that like i made a conscious decision so i did i sold one thing my truck my through my thirty five hundred dollar mountain bike you know my three thousand dollar kayak you know just down the list you know all my toys sold it all and you know that lasted for so long until i ran out of shit to sell and and um you know, eventually ran out of everything. I had nothing left to sell and um, was just, that was it, man. Yeah. That was it. And uh, I, it got so bad that um, I remember, sh- I remember getting <sighs> a lot of heroin, uh, injecting a lot at one point in some I don't know if it was an attempt to uh, overdose or what it was, but it was certainly the most by far I'd ever done at once. And um, I remember feeling like I was fighting for my life that night. And that was at the very end after I'd sold everything. That was, I was in a rent house and I was about to be evicted out of that, you know, um, and I remember I just was, I, I, I just, I, you know, I was nodding off. I just, I, I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to die. Like, this is it, you know? And I was just felt like I was fighting for my life. Like, okay, maybe I don't want to die, you know? And I didn't. And, um, I survived that night, luckily. And, uh, you know, used a little bit after that, but I remember that, that was like the end of it, that little period in that rent house. But right before I got evicted, I remember sitting and I've talked about this many times, cause this is a kind of a, a pivotal point for me as I was sitting at a table, uh, Dustin Holland and Dylan Holland, two of my buddies, their brothers and his wife. And I remember, I remember looking at him saying, 
you guys realize if we keep doing this, that we're, we will die. And, um, they're both dead. The brothers now, you know, and, um, is that from overdose or? Yeah. 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 They both overdosed. Yeah. And, uh, Dustin was, Dustin was a good guy, man. He, uh, he was one of them guys that, you know, everybody liked, you know what I mean? He'd walk in the room, light up the room with his smile, you know, one of those people. And, uh, that was tough. Um, there's been a lot of losses along the way. Um, Dustin just happens to be one that I used a lot with, you know, that, that I think brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. Um, that for me personally is one that kind of hits a a nerve, you know, Mm -hmm. but I was one of the last times. And then, then somebody came over and basically helped me, um, I didn't have any insurance. I couldn't go to, uh, I didn't, you know, there wasn't peer specialists yet. I didn't know about resources. I called a couple of rehabs. Like I didn't have insurance. I didn't, you know, I didn't know about catchment areas and all that shit. I didn't know about any of that. Yeah. Um, so I had somebody come over or she, a friend that was a girl came over and like, basically, you know, like basically like did the whole, you know, guard my phone. People would show up at my door and she'd like run them off, you know, while I was like withdrawn, detoxing. Um, it's a good friend. Yeah. 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 And, um, <clears throat> and then, you know, um, I went a lot, got evicted and, but I was on my way. I got, I remember I ended up, uh, all I had left was a work truck, all beat up work truck, but I was sleeping. No, I sold that too, actually later. <laughs> And so I was actually in the girl who got helped me. I was in her vehicle. She had a Tahoe. We were sleeping behind a um, gas station. So I was homeless very briefly, but I was homeless. Didn't have a place to go. It was winter. It was cold. And I remember we, I remember we looked at each other and was like, oh, at least we're clean. You know, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, at least we're clean. Like, um, but yeah, from that point forward, I started to try to get some sort of life back, which is not easy to do, as you know, and uh, anybody that's been through recovery knows. Um, what happened was, is that was 2017, right? Beginning of 2000, February 2017 is when got clean. I got clean, right? Okay. So, but here's what happened is that I had been covering up all my mental health problems and all the pain and trauma and all that with drugs for years at this point. Right. And so since 2012 is when I started heavy. Right. So five years of like heavy needle use that I'd been blocking out everything. So I hadn't had to deal with all that. So now I had to deal with that. And it was, I mean, it was hard to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I would punch out a windshield, like driving down the road, I'd punch out my own windshield. Like, you know, I had very, my anger, you know, it's very, it's been a very, it's been a long road overcoming that. <laughs> Let's yeah. just say that, you know? Um, so basically what happened was, is in 2019, the summer of 2019. So two years after I got clean, you think like, Oh, you get clean, everything gets better. Well, if you don't deal with the mental health issues, you know, 
not everybody has to deal with the mental health issues and that's great. Good for them. But there's a lot of people I think that are dealing with shit that don't talk about it. Even though there are a lot of us out there that are like trying to raise awareness and trying to, you know, um, talk about the stigma of mental health and all this stuff. I, I still think that I know, in fact, that it's still stigmatized. You know, you still mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of people out there <clears throat> that are dealing with whether it be anxiety, depression or, or something else to some degree that they don't talk about. it. Now, it's getting talked about more and more. That's good. Yeah. But, um, man, I didn't have, I didn't have, so I, I didn't have anything in place. I didn't have the right support in place and the right things. Like I said, there was no peer specialist then. And that's something a peer specialist will, the recovery movement now, it does at least, if you want to get into recovery, it's not hard. I mean, it's not, I don't want to say it's not, it's not hard to, it's a lot easier than it was back then because the resources are so much more than what they were back then. Yeah. Right. Like there's people that know about the resources and like, Hey, here's this, here's this, here's this. And, uh, anyways, so, um, anyway, so I basically in 2019, summer 2008, I took a, I had a mental health breakdown, man, like total, total. I had three felonies when all that time, like my, my whole criminal professional career, right. Like without getting in trouble. And then, um, summer 2019 had three, different felonies in 30 day period at different times, you know, threatening a judge, assault on a police officer, um, and a, and a battery domestic battery charge, which by the way, for the record, uh, she attacked me. Yeah. Okay. That's and the story. It, it was, you know, it's in the report. <laughs> she wrote it up. They, it, but just so everybody knows yeah. if you get attacked by a female, and you grab their wrist off your throat or off your face. It's over. That's battery. <laughs> it's over. That's yeah. battery. I mean, yeah. so anyways, that's what that was. But um, anyways, I should have never been by there. I was trying to see my kids. Yeah. I was trying to stop by and see my kids. But anyways, yeah. And you were clean when that happened. Yeah. I mean, I had had some drinks on, on I drank some alcohol. So I don't. Yeah. I wasn't 100% absent. But I was off the, the needle, though. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So to me, I was clean. Right. But I, I guess I wasn't completely sober and clean. I wasn't, yeah. you know, where I needed to be yet. Because you were still dealing with some mental health health issues. Yeah, that weren't that, that weren't addressed. And so so I got all those charges and, you know, they were like, you know, OK, 120 days in jail. I went to a psych. They took me to a psych ward. Uh, I had a few visits at a couple of different psych wards. And um, then, uh, you know, that was in 2020. I did my time in Sling County Jail and which was terrible. Um, I got, I had to go in there and de- detox off my anxiety medicine. And um, like the 12th day I was in there for some reason, I decided to fight the biggest dude in the pod and uh, got, got my ass whooped. Good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, man, yeah. I mean, I, I got, I, I had to go, they had to take me and get staples put in my head. I mean, blood was just everywhere. Just puddles of blood. It was bad. Yeah. Um, so then they put me in. Shout out to Saline County Jail. Yeah. Uh, so then they put me in, uh, that was my 12th day in there, right? Yeah. For a 120 day stay. And then they put me in. Um, Shout out to Big Bubba. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, you know, I appreciated him. 
Uh, um, if I could thank him, I'd like to thank him because he could have done a lot worse. <laughs> he could he he avoided my nose. Yeah. And he avoided my teeth. Yeah. He just basically <laughs> kept it like right here. And the yeah. back of my head was like slamming into the How into courteous. the concrete. Right. Yeah. How courteous. That's what I thought. I thought, man, he yeah. he kept my teeth in, man. Yeah. He could like he had because what happened was he was, you know, he was slinging me around and I had a hold of the uh the top bunk. This is a big dude. A yeah. big dude. And I was he by the way, he cheap shot at me. I I just want to say for the record, uh-huh. he cheap shot at me. I was sitting on the floor barefooted, like chilling. And but I had been running my mouth, you know. And he came over and like cheap shot at me and like I jumped up and it, he had, you know, so he did have the jump on me, but probably wouldn't have mattered anyways. Um, but when he was pulling me off that top rack and like dislocated my arm. So I like my good arm, like I had no good arm, man. I was like, it was a bad situation. <laughs> my good arm. Yeah, man. So I remember looking up at him saying like, dude, like he, as he's like pounding my face, I remember like calmly saying like, dude you got me like it's you good know, like, like yeah like yeah. dude and then i also remember having a thought like dude is this dude gonna like kill me <laughs> you know and but i was like speaking calmly um anyways they took me to the hospital they stapled me up and then they put me in the 23-1 lockdown pod you yeah. know and then um it, it, shit got worse after that like there was a dude coming by my door um i had actually now what they say, what my therapist says is uh, disassociative psychosis. Mm-hmm. Like I was hearing voices in there. Um, I was on lithium at the time and they upped my dosage in there, which is weird, but I'm not trying to get anybody to sling County in trouble or anything. You know, I'm <laughs> sure that was exactly what I needed. Um, <laughs> um i love the sling county jail i i go in there i help people uh they they run a great program there this was all my fault um but yeah i i i remember this guy coming by i was hearing these voices and there were three of the people that worked there it wasn't imaginary voices voices it was three of the people that worked there and i mean it was vivid as day. i had they they didn't let me sleep they didn't let me sleep. And uh, that was, and actually the first 12 days I didn't sleep. So I was detoxing. And then after that, you know, after the head, the head trauma, I had my head bashed in the concrete a lot, you know? And uh, so that probably had a lot to do with it, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, these voices were with me the whole rest of the time. And so I didn't get any sleep. They wouldn't let me sleep. And um it got worse and worse. And I remember like when I would have little spurts of like doze off for a second, I remember there was this one guy who would come by and he'd like, he'd bang on my door. Like you'd have one person would get out at a time in this pod. Right. And I remember he'd come by and he'd bang on my door and man, like I just, they were letting me, these, these voices were, were letting me like doze off for a second. And this dude just woke me up. Like, and like, what can I do? Cause when I'm out, he's locked up, like, you know, and, um, you know, I'm not in my right mind at all. You got to keep this in mind, yep. everybody. I'm completely not okay in many different forms of, of the, uh, of the word. So, um, so what I did was I had uh, saved up a lot of Coca-Cola bottles 
from commissary and I started to uh, fill them up with piss with my urine. Yeah. And I had about nine bottles saved up and then I went down there and I looked through his window and I just smiled at him and I just started to pour all of that underneath his door. And, uh, and then I just went and got in the shower. <laughs> like nothing happened. Like nothing happened. Yeah. And um, I was taking my shower and the, of course the cavalry starts pressing the button, you know, and cavalry comes in and, and um, you know, I'm in the shower and they're surrounded me and I'm like, I'm going to finish taking my shower. Like, you know, um, and I did. Um, but then, you know, I got tased and drugged through the jail and then I got put in like real salt. Like they put me in the front right by where that door slams. The turtle suit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wasn't a turtle suit after that. Um, not then. Yeah. But th I did later. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, after I, after when I finally got out, man, um, that's when I realized like, okay, I, I went back to work for a good friend of mine, John Ron Shelton, a great guy. He builds pole barns. Um, good Christian guy. He lets his whole crew is made up of people in recovery. So it's a beautiful thing that he does, you know? Um, and I went back to work for him and I remember him looking at me, just me and him. And I just got out and he looked at me and I was telling him about, you know, the voices at the time. I didn't think, I thought it was real. I thought they were, it was like psychological torture that they were like messing with me. And he looked at me and he goes, man, he goes, he goes, you're, you're going to end up in the state hospital or something, man. Like, you know, and, uh, anyways, after that, it, it's kind of when, uh, I met a girl not long after that, uh, started talking to her. You know, I, I was, I was honest about my, everything that led up to that point. Like I just got out of jail, da, 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 everything. Um, and for some reason she's, she's still talked to me. I don't know why, but, um, but she ghosted me. She was supposed to like hang on me on like Fourth of July or something, and she like ghosted me or something. And I like was suicidal over it, like literally suicidal over it, like trying to cut my wrist. And and she had just happened to work in mental health and um, made a phone call and asked me if I wanted to go, you know, if I wanted help and this, that, and the other. And anyways, long story short, it led me to go to Bridgeway. Been there. Yeah. And uh they serve really good food. Yeah, yeah. The food and, at Bridgeway was awesome. Yeah, Bridgeway <laughs> was a good stay for me, man. I mean, yeah. I, honestly, I don't like when I think of that, it wasn't like I I have good memories of that. You know, like I don't say good memories. I just that was really the beginning of my true recovery. Okay. Right? Okay. Like I got clean in 2017, but my true to me, my true recovery that involved that I realized like, okay, I got mental health issues that mm -hmm. need to be focused on. And so that's when I started focusing on mental health and became a very huge mental health advocate. Still am. Um, I'm on the board of NAMI now. Okay. Just, just became a board member of NAMI, which I'm very excited about. Like just anything I can do to be closer to mental health. I'm in, I'm in school to be a social worker okay. for that exact reason. Same okay. thing. Uh, I believe mental health. I mean, we all know mental health and substance abuse, you know, and addiction go hand in hand. Yeah. You know, and it's something that uh, that I 
strongly believe in. But anyways, that's my my lived experience. That's that's why though. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that's cool too. You know, <clears throat> there's a there's a huge stigma around mental health. There's a huge stigma around addiction. Um, uh, there's a huge stigma around drug addicts and drug dealers and and all of that the dirtbag lifestyle that that comes with that. And I think you know just like you were talking about in the jail, um, and the way that they handled that mental health issue probably wasn't the best way. And when I say the best way, I mean the most productive, the healthiest way to do that. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of programs in the jail that handle mental health. Now, obviously, there's the the majority of people that are in incarcerated right now, or even then or whenever, there's some underlying mental health issue. There's some underlying addiction issue. And I think, I hope that one day that the institutions can focus more on a pathway for mental health and addiction. I mean, that is really because if if it wasn't all about the money, then I believe that there would be more ways to, to help so, mental health and addiction. I'm glad you said that because because of my lived experience, because of all that I went through, like yeah. rehabilitation and diversion and mental health are obviously that's that's a huge passion of mine. And and there are I've learned now there are organizations, there are coalitions um, there are people that are really shaking things up and working really hard. And sometimes these things take a long time, you know, before you see the common people, you know, see the change. Yeah. But um, we are heading in that direction. There are people in high places that are fighting for, for that type of stuff. And that's something that I firmly advocate for and believe in with all of my heart that that mental health should be, you know, um, not everyone should be thrown in jail. It makes a, it just makes a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot worse. Um, and did you know, by the way, Pulaski County, all the jails are overfilled. You know, they're all, Pulaski County is like overfilled. Well, when someone gets assessed, if the judge says, okay, we're going to have this guy assessed, right? And then they're assessed and they're like approved or what, however they say to, to go to the state hospital or whatever. And they got to be on like a waiting list or whatever. They, they go back to wait in Pulaski County Jail, right? Well, at that point, though, they're actually a patient at that point, hmm. right? So they're a patient in, in jail that's not being treated as a patient. Hmm. So that's something that, that like NAMI, for instance, that's something that they're working on, you know, that's really legislation cool. to change stuff like yeah, that. You know? That's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So, Josh, we've we've talked a lot about your your childhood. We've talked about the teenage years and and chasing the money and th- and that addiction of the money. Uh, we talked about your uh, active addiction and your children and what that breakup did to you and and that heartbreak just kind of drove you down into the heroin use and and in the opioids. Uh, we talked about losing two good friends to overdose. Um, I want to hit on, uh, real quick before we end, uh, your recovery. Uh, 
And you mentioned that your recovery started at um, uh, Bridgeway, which mm-hmm. Bridgeway, just for all of our listeners, Bridgeway is a a mental health uh, treatment center. Uh, they also treat a little bit of addiction, but it's more on the mental mm-hmm. health side uh, for suicidal prevention, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> where is your what, what is your pathway to recovery? So it's interesting you bring that up <laughs> because the pathways are something I wanted to talk about because I think that people have this idea that like, what's your pathway? It's this or it's this. Yeah. And I think that it's too black and white. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, there, one thing Casey Copeland, he was my peer supervisor and I worked under him uh, at Exodus.life was my first peer specialist job. And one thing that Casey Copeland drove into my head was you know, there, you know, everyone's pathway is different. There, there's no, if it gets you to, it's, it's just like, what's his name said? If you, if it gets you to recovery, yeah, right. Then do it. Right. Yeah. So I think like when people say, what's your pathway, that's a very broad question. Yes. Yeah. Too broad. Yeah. Um, but you know, to put it in a nutshell, I'll just say that like, you know, I've, I've tried various different things and, Therapy, I'll just say that therapy is a huge part of, for me personally, what's um, gotten me, you know, uh, down the path to recovery, yeah. you know. Um, so it sounds like what I'm getting from that is more of like a smart recovery pathway for I you. love smart recovery. Yeah, I think I there's. I, I think there are tools in smart recovery. I'll tell you one of the things that I, I got to say this. This is so important. And I want everyone listening to, to hear this. Because recovery is not linear. Mm-hmm. Okay. This, you know, the stages of change, the stages of recovery, they are not linear. Think of it as a circle. And this is, this is smart recovery teaches this, but this isn't, I'm not saying it because smart recovery says it. This is just a better way to look at it. Mm-hmm. So because we have all, I, I doubt there's very many of us that have not tried to get clean and relapse at least once. Mm-hmm. Right. We know the statistics are terrible. So in these stages of change in the stages of recovery, if you relapse, it's not like you got to start all the way back over. Right. It's a circle. You can enter and exit, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can enter back into whatever stage. Yeah. So I think the all or nothing mentality and the what's your pathway is I'm not criticizing. I just think that there's so there's like infinite pathways. Yeah, there are. You know there what are. I mean? There are. Um, you know, I was in the uh, advanced peer training this last week and we covered uh, pathways pretty heavily and i was very glad that they did and because it helped me understand like my different pathways like you know i think that there's a stigma around pathways yeah and it's like i tried the 12-step program and 12-step programs and i tried religion and i tried all of this right and uh what i learned was that You can take, which I didn't learn, but this is what I did, is that you can take a little bit from the 12-step program. You can take a little bit from the natural way. You can take a little bit from the religious way. You can take a little bit from every single pathway, smart recovery, therapy, all of these different pathways. 
and and you create your own pathway you like my recovery is my recovery and it's it's very genuine yes. and that's why it fucking worked for me yeah you know it it i i saw what somebody else was doing i applied a little bit of that into my my pathway so my pathway is brian's pathway it's it's my personal it, it's like i went and got tailored for a suit you yeah. know, that suit's only yeah. going to fit me just right. And so, and that's the way that I treat my recovery. Yeah. Is that, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and a little yeah. bit of that. And now I've got my perfect mixture for what is going to work for me. It's 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 almost like a medicine, you know, the, yeah. a, a, a sleeping pill might not work for you. Uh, a but a uh, something something else some other kind of pill might work for for yeah. you you know what I'm saying so we've we've got to to organize our recovery in a way that works and that fits bestly bestly to us yeah. you know what I'm saying and I think it's important that you know so if people the traditional you know uh, what I call the traditional my dad you know the traditional uh, pathway mm-hmm. um, doesn't always work for everybody. And what I always tell people is, is like, hey, listen, you know, if you've relapsed, especially more than once, like, you know, you can try a different, you can try yeah. something else. Yeah. Like you don't have to keep trying the same thing. That's not the only way. Yeah. And you, you know, don't have to force it to yeah. work for you. either. And, and people tend to think that like, just because now I know there's some stigma within the, the 12 step if you're on medication assisted treatment, but there are groups, you know, the MARA yeah. groups. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can use medication assisted treatment. And go to church. It's not separate, man. Like, you know, like you can you can um, go to therapy and go to 12 step and be on medication assisted treatment because that I did that. Yeah. Now, I don't attend the the NA anymore. That wasn't very helpful for me personally, simply because I it just it I didn't want my problem wasn't the addiction so much as it was the mental health yeah issues yeah uh the addiction was like covering up all that shit yeah you know so anyways everyone's different everyone's situation is different everyone's situation is different yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so life is good life is balanced yeah so uh, yeah so just to just to kind of put a bow on on that you know i um once i started focusing on my recovery really focusing on my recovery Mm -hmm. um i got back in school you know, um, and then I found out about the peer program and that was huge for my personal recovery, just being involved in uh-huh. that. Um, so I, I always tell people like, man, you'd be a great peer specialist, you know, because I think it's a it's a great when I first heard about it, I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Yeah, me I, st- too. I still do. Me too. Um, so. I'm not, <laughs> anyways, I, I had something I was going to say. I'm just not going to say it, though. Um, but yeah, so, and I continued, you know, I think life, we, you know, one of the ethics for us is to put our personal recovery first, which is mm-hmm. great. Yeah. And I, that's, it's an, I mean, it's, that's what we should do. Yeah. But what about personal growth? Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know, to me personally, I think growth like we should always, it's like Bob Dylan said, we should always be in the art of becoming, mm-hmm. right? Like we should always be like growing, like progress is not linear either. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. But if we just get in, if we just get into recovery and we're like, like you tried to say like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I think we constantly have to try to make progress 
in some way, one way or another, you know, there's like all these dimensions of wellness. There's like eight dimensions of wellness, you know, emotional, spiritual, financial, occupational, physical, you know, all those. And if you, you know, they all affect each other. And I think it's very important to be, I think it's very important to kind of be uh, aware of uh, mental health and like all, really all the aspects of health, you know, um, when you go into recovery, because growth, I think, is is what it's all about as an individual, as a human collectively, you know, um, like what we're doing. This is this is growth. Yeah. You know, this is a, yeah. this is growth. Sometimes growth is not easy. You know, sometimes it takes um, bad experiences. Sometimes it takes stressful situations, you know, that lead to growth or progress. But, but I think that ultimately that um, it, it, I think that, and I, I'm not saying that's the way I'm just saying that I think that, that uh, personal growth is like, it's like, it's like personal recovery it's like taking personal recovery and saying, okay, let's make it about personal growth, but always give yourself grace, right? Because mm-hmm. you're always going to stumble. Mm-hmm. You're always going to stumble. Um, but I think that always keeps you moving forward and it's, it makes it uh, less likely for you to fall backwards. Yep. You know, <clears throat> yep. that makes sense. It, yeah. It makes perfect sense to me because I've experienced it. Um, so, but I'm going to sum up what you're saying and kind of paraphrase it. So if there's somebody out there that doesn't understand it, uh, I want to kind of get the yeah. point across what, what Josh is saying is give yourself a break, quit setting these expectations of, of, or this big picture of what somebody else told you, what recovery is or what your mental health is or, or any of that quit, quit, take the labels away from it. Define recovery for yourself. Define it as your own definition. Make it yours and own that shit. Um, You know, it's it's so difficult to, you know, I have this problem with religion as well. Somebody tells me what God is supposed to be. And then in my own personal definition of my higher power, my my own God is is completely different and so then i question myself and i question my identity and then i feel shameful and i feel guilty and it's the same with recovery don't allow other people to tell you what your recovery is if your recovery works you it works for you and and you are improving your life and you are putting in the work to make yourself a better person, a better individual, and a, and, a, and just a better all-around energy for yourself, then do that. Don't fucking look back. Don't don't quit judging yourself for your own recovery when when it doesn't match to somebody else's recovery. That's not their recovery. It's yours. It's personal. Make it yours. Define what that is. Put in the work. If you have to go to therapy, go to therapy. If that's what you do, I'm not telling you you have to go to therapy. If you have to go to a 12-step meeting, go to 12-step meeting. Do what works for you. That is what the beauty of recovery is. There is no set definition on this shit. Do exactly what works for you. And so that is that I think that is the most important part of this whole episode. And I'm really glad that we touched on the pathways and and understanding that it's genuine. It's a it's a personalized 
uh, decision and a whole situation for yeah. you. So, well, thank you very much, Josh, for coming on the show and, and sharing your amazing story. I'm sure there's going to be many people out there that can relate to the addiction of money, uh, the, the, the breakup and the mental health issue. I don't think we've touched big on the mental health. So I'm really glad that you came on and shared that experience um, for anybody out there listening Hey, go ahead. By the way, I just want to say real quick, just just to to finish all that off with a ni nice, neat little bow. Uh, the girl that ghosted me that yeah. one time that I was suicidal over, um, I ended up marrying. Okay. And she's 22 weeks pregnant. That's I have, amazing. I have a little boy on the way. So I'm in school full time. I'm in a BSW program. Yeah. I'm working. I have a great job. Um, you know, I'm married. Got a son on the way. So... And that all, if you if you rewind back to where we were earlier, you yeah. know, um, from from that point to here, I mean, that's that's it wasn't easy, but you know, yeah. any, if I can do it, anybody can do it. So yeah, and and you you gained everything, you lost everything, yeah. and you slowly gained yourself back. Yeah, and I'm still it's still a work yeah. in progress every day, yeah. every day, every day. You know, yeah. I mean, it's still I'm still learning to get better with my emotional intelligence and my impulsiveness. And, you know, it's just a constant, but all, but the, like I said, the, like you just summed up, the key is, you know, give yourself grace because there is yeah. no success without failure. Yeah, so, absolutely. Anyways, That's great. Well, thank you very much, Josh. Thank you very much. Well, this wraps up uh, season two, episode three of the Dirtbag Chronicles podcast. I want to thank you for following and liking and commenting on all of our social media. I couldn't be doing this without you guys. So uh, the support is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. And don't forget to check us out on TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. Please subscribe to the YouTube. We are growing on the YouTube channel. And then you can also catch all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to a podcast, I'm trying to get that there. So if it's not there, let me know and I'll make sure that it's available. Thank you guys very much and God bless.